It all begins and ends with him. And that's what we're going to see in our text today as we continue in Matthew chapter 17. So please read along as I read aloud this story about Jesus recorded as the very words of God. Matthew 17, verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he, Jesus, was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Jesus answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Let's pray. Lord, we see in these gospel stories disciples who are often perplexed and confused and misunderstanding. And Lord, we stand right next to them for often when we get a view of you, we are perplexed and confused, and we misunderstand you. And so, Lord, we pray that we would get a better sight of Jesus today, and we would understand how you, Jesus, have entered into our world, entered into our life story, and you are making us new in anticipation of that day when you make all things new. So open our ears, open our hearts, give us the ability to listen to Jesus today. We pray in his name. Amen. (coughs) What a a story. What What a wild story. In quick succession, the disciples experience three astounding things. Jesus' appearance is transformed by light. 
Moses and Elijah show up. Now, Moses has been gone for 1,400 years and Elijah for 850, and yet they appear with the bright and shining Jesus. All this followed by God speaking to the disciples from a shining cloud. Now, these disciples had seen plenty of amazing things. But they were not prepared for this. It, it, would, be, it would be as shocking as going on a hike with your dad up Sugarloaf Mountain. And you get to the top and he starts to glow. And up the trail walks George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. And your dad starts to talk with them like they're friends. You're not prepared for this. Uh, The disciples were not prepared for what they saw. But Matthew 17 tells us this story so we can see how God showed three of the disciples who Jesus really is. Not just a great man, not just a prophet, but the glorious, eternal Son of God. So the big question behind this passage is, who is Jesus? And that's been the big question that we, we've been looking into since the beginning of this Gospel. The answer to the question comes to us not through a doctrinal statement. It comes to us through a story. This story of Jesus' transformation, transfiguration, fits into the bigger story of the Gospel, which fits into the biggest story about how God created the world, how people He created rebelled against Him, and how He sent His Son to restore the world back to where He originally intended it to be. Now, if you read this story and you take this story into yourself, it can become a part of your own story. And as you ponder it, you're called to consider how does this story fit with my story? Maybe you've noticed over the years that Devin often talks about this when he teaches us. That God has written a story and He's invited us to be a part of that story. Our lives are shaped far less by doctrines. Our lives are not shaped by ideas. They're shaped by stories. Now, the question I want to ask you is, is the story of your life the story you get to write? Because that's the dominant belief of our day. Or are you a part of a bigger story? A story you don't control, but a story that shapes you and controls you? What stories shape your life? When you begin to think of your life this way, you realize there's lots of stories out there competing for your attention. Every day, people are telling you stories, often because they want to sell you something or they want your vote. And you have to decide how your story fits with what they are saying. My daughter Anna 
went to the business college at the University of Maryland. And on her first day, she was informed that they were going to, through her business education, they were going to teach her how to make herself into a brand. Brand you, they called it. As if she were a product that she could sell to make a lot of money. Her brand, they said, was based on her story. And they were going to help her shape that story to whatever she wanted it to be so she could find success. So she could establish herself as a successful brand. Now, usually when people talk about our stories like this, it's not so obvious they're trying to persuade us. And so without realizing it, we carry stories about, around in our heads and they interpret to us who we are and what our life is all about. Jesus is the focus of the gospel story. But in this story of his transfiguration and the one that preceded it in chapter 16, we learn about Jesus from how Peter interprets him. In telling Jesus' story, Matthew must tell us Peter's story. And in that story, Matthew and the Holy Spirit call us to respond to Peter's story by letting it shape our own. Now, I just thought that may sound a little complicated. So let's just dive in. A little background. Six days before Jesus took Peter, James, and John up the mountain, Jesus led them to all the disciples to a place north of Israel, where he could be alone with the twelve. There he asked them what other people thought about him and what they, the disciples, thought about him. And Peter said emphatically, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus told Peter that he was blessed by God for seeing this. And that because of his confession, Jesus would give him the keys that would unlock the kingdom of heaven. For some, it would unlock them into the life of the kingdom. For, other, for others, it would lock them out of this kingdom. This is giving Peter massive honor and sobering responsibility. Then Jesus informed the disciples that he was going to suffer and die at the hands of sinful men. And those sinful men included the corrupt religious leaders of their day. So Peter goes from getting this wonderful assignment and this great honor to rebuking Jesus for what he just said. Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. Peter says, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus, in response, treats Peter's statement as if it were for, from the mouth of Satan himself. So Peter went from the heights of honor to the depths of humiliation all in two back-to-back conversations. How could Peter have gotten this so wrong? How could he see Jesus as the Christ, his king, acknowledge him as his king, and then turn around and rebuke Jesus for saying that he was going to be killed. 
Well, one way to answer that is Peter was living in the wrong story. In Peter's story, the Christ did not get killed by his enemies. It was worked the other way around. The Christ was God's anointed king, the one who set wrongs right, not the one who was the object of the hatred and manhandling of wicked people. In Peter's story, the Christ went from one conquest to another until his kingdom covered the entire earth. So Peter gets Jesus. He gets that he's the Christ, the Son of God, but he doesn't get Jesus either. Peter's story about Christ has no place for his being humiliated and killed by sinners. And so this had to be shattering for Peter. His image of Christ and the story of Christ had to be radically altered. And that's why he needs a trip up the mountain. He needs to see Jesus. Not just in his humiliation, but also in his glory. He needs to listen to Jesus. And then as the passage ends, he needs to see Jesus again in his suffering. He needs to let what he sees and hears change the story he carries around in his head. For the Christ that he confesses is far more powerful and far better than he ever imagined. So number one, verses one through four, seeing Jesus in his glory. Jesus leads them up the mountain, not just for privacy, but because meeting God on a mountain is significant in the history of God's people. There on the top of the mountain, in verse 2, Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Now this word we see here, translated transfigure, it doesn't refer to his outer physical features changing, but to this inner intense, bright, like the sun, radiant glow that comes from within him. And so looking at his face is like looking directly into the sun as his inner beating shines out. (coughs) This must have been at the same time both startling and wonderful. But before they have time to even absorb what they're saying, upstep Moses and Elijah. And Jesus begins to have a conversation with them. I assume that it's from the conversation they figure out who these two are, not like they were expecting them. So why would, in this event that God has arranged for these disciples to witness, why Moses and Elijah? And there's a lot of reasons for this. Both were prophets. Both were saviors in Israel. God made his covenant with Israel through Moses. God restored his covenant with Israel when Israel had become deeply corrupt through Elijah. Both Moses and Elijah encountered God's glory on a mountain. Both worked miracles. Both suffered rejection and hostility. Both were central figures in Israel's 
history. So there they are, and Peter, Mark says they were, they, the disciples were afraid, and it, it seems like sometimes, you know, when people are nervous, they just feel like, I need to do something. You know, some women, they get nervous, they cook, you know. Uh, so, you know, I want to be useful. So Peter wants to be useful. He wants to be helpful. And he says, look, let me build three shelters for each of you so you can prolong your stay and continue what it must have been a fascinating conversation. But the text says that before the words are completely out of Peter's mouth, this bright cloud descends upon the mountain. A bright cloud like the cloud that fell on Mount Sinai when Moses met with God. And it envelops the group of six, a brightness, uh, a density of cloud that they, they can't even see each other necessarily. And then, well, before we continue, I want to stop and ask a question. Why did God interrupt Peter? It says, while he was still speaking. Does Peter's offer to help with the accommodations reveal something wrong about how Peter was viewing the event? Now, the first thing you've got to realize is this event didn't happen for Jesus' sake. When he was baptized, he had to participate in it to fulfill all righteousness. He had to do it. So it wasn't for Jesus that this event took place. Nor was it for the sake of Moses and Elijah. This was for the disciples. They needed to see this. God set this up so they could see Jesus, not Moses and Elijah. Only Jesus is transfigured. Moses and Elijah are not. It's in his state of glory that Jesus meets with the two prophets of old. Just as Moses and Elijah encountered God on the mountain and saw his glory, so they are again encountering God on the mountain and seeing his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. It's not about Moses and Elijah. It's about Jesus. Then God speaks and interprets the event for the disciples. So number two, beginning in verse five, hearing Jesus. We have to see Jesus in his glory. Now the disciples need to hear Jesus. Let's read verse five again just to get it fixed in our minds. Peter was still speaking When behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. God Himself speaks. Now, this is only one of two times in the Gospel accounts where God the Father breaks into creation and audibly speaks. And He speaks in both occasions to identify who Jesus is. This, this man is my beloved son. Not just my son. This is the son I love. 
This is the Son with whom I am well pleased. God approves of everything Jesus has said and done. Everything Jesus has planned and predicted. Especially as Peter needs to hear Jesus resolve to go to Jerusalem and be killed by sinful men. Now, the first two of these three statements that God the Father makes are identical to the statements He makes the one other time He speaks audibly in the Gospel, and that's at Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3. A dove descended from heaven and rested on Jesus, and a voice said, This is My beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Identical words. But with God's identification of Jesus and His approval of Jesus, the disciples need to hear a command. Listen to Him! You can hear Jesus' voice, but not listen to Him. You know, when a parent tells a child, listen to me, (laughs) he's not saying open your ears, but open your heart. Open your mind. Change the way you think and you act. So God is telling the disciples, listen to Jesus. Peter hadn't been listening to Jesus. God tells the disciples to listen to Jesus when He says that He must suffer and die and be raised. Listen to Him when He says that if you want to follow Him, you must deny yourself, take up your particular cross daily, and follow Him in a life of sacrifice for the glory of Christ and the good of others. Listen to Him! I do not speak from experience, but the three disciples' response to God's voice is, from what I have read, similar to a soldier's response to an artillery bombardment. You fall flat on the ground in a futile attempt to find shelter in the dirt beneath you. As Matthew tells us, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Didn't fall on their faces at the transfiguration of Jesus. They didn't fall on their faces at Moses and Elijah's arrival. They fell on their faces when they heard the voice of God. And then, just as suddenly as the cloud fell and God spoke, so the cloud lifted and Moses and Elijah departed, but the disciples didn't know it. In their terror, they are hiding their faces in the turf. And so Jesus, this is so compassionate, He comes and touches them. He meets them in their terror. I'm still here, his touch says. He tells them not to be afraid. They look up and realize that everything's returned to normal. And Jesus is still with them. In verse 9, Jesus commands them to tell no one about the vision they had just witnessed until, so they have to keep this a secret, until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Why not? Why not tell, why not tell everybody? Hey, we, we saw. Because people would take this evidence of Jesus' glory and fit it into their false story of how the Messiah was to conquer through a violent overthrow of the powers that be. 
after Jesus was raised from the dead, it would be clear that his conquest was bigger than a political revolution. He conquered death itself. And so as they travel down the mountain, the three disciples still have one question. And so they're, they're, trying, to, they're trying to take all this in. What, what in the world? And they ask Jesus a question. And that forms the final section of our story. And the answer to that question is the same as the answer to the question we asked in the first part of the sermon. Who is Jesus? What do you see when you see Jesus? So number three, seeing Jesus not in his glory, but again in his suffering. Verses 10 through 13. Let's, let's read them. The disciples asked Jesus, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And Jesus answered, Elijah does come and he'll restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now, to understand why the disciples had questions about Elijah and not Moses requires a little bit of explanation. The Jews of Jesus' day were anticipating a return of Elijah based on the final verses of the Old Testament. Okay, so the, the last thing God says before 400 years of silence leading up to their day is Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Listen, listen to what Malachi prophesies. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now the teachers in Jesus' day, the scribes, taught that this meant that Elijah would come and restore everything broken and corrupted among God's people. The children of God would return to the faithfulness of their ancient fathers, and the fathers would again teach the children of Israel the right ways of God. In verse 11, Jesus restates what the scribes taught, and Jesus agrees with it. Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But the scribes did not recognize the return of Elijah in the per person of John the Baptist. They were right about Elijah. They were wrong about John. John preached coming judgment before the great and awesome day of the Lord. He called people to repentance to prepare for this day. But most importantly, John inaugurated the ministry of Jesus who brings about in his life and death and resurrection the restoration of all things. But the scribes didn't get that. They didn't get John and they didn't get his message. So Jesus said they did whatever they pleased. 
And that ended in Herod having him beheaded. This New Testament scholar Don Carson summarizes Jesus' statement in verse 11. The Baptist, Elijah, did fulfill his mission, but he was killed doing it. So also, says Jesus, like John the Baptist, the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. So we have to see Jesus in His suffering. We have to see Him in His glory. We have to listen to Him. We have to see Him in His suffering. Verses 1-13 through call us to see Jesus as divine. To listen to Jesus and let His Word shape our understanding of who He is and what He requires. And then to see Jesus again, the suffering Son of God. Now, most of us here today, I don't know everybody, but most of us, if not all of us, would agree with what Peter saw in that Jesus was and is divine, the Son of God. And most of us, if not all of us, would agree that he had to suffer and die to bear the sins of his people. But the text causes us to ask a question question of ourselves. Does our story, how we see our lives and the progress of our lives fit in with Jesus' story? Or do we try to get his story to kind of fit, you know, you know, when you're doing puzzles sometimes and you, 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 you try to get that piece that doesn't really fit, but kind of jam it in because it's close? Do we try to do that? Do we have a distorted view of Jesus and the life He calls us to? Look, Peter got it wrong. It took a, it took a while for Peter to get this. And I, I don't see myself or anybody else here as like, we're, we're better than Peter. Dumb, dumb Peter. Peter failed numerous times. At Jesus' trial, he denied him three times as the story proceeds. So you can see how very different Jesus' story was from the one that Peter wanted to write for him. But we also know that Peter finally got it because years later, he wrote about this event in Matthew. It's fascinating. We have his words in his second letter, 2 Peter. If you have time, turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. Surely we have time. We've got all day. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. You can, you, can, you can see Peter sitting at his desk and being flooded with memory. When he writes, verse 16, 2 Peter chapter 1, we did not follow cleverly devised myths, the stories this world tells us, when we made known to you the power 
and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more firmly confirmed to which we will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. You can see how Peter had now taken Jesus' story into himself and he recognized, yes, it's a dark day. And our hearts are often pressed down with this darkness. But I saw the brightness of the Savior. I saw Him on the mountain. I heard the voice of God. And so now we must pay attention. Pay attention. Pay attention to Him. So let me ask you again. Are there any cleverly devised myths that you connect with Jesus' story? Any promises of a life of ease without sacrifice? Promises of constant prosperity with no opposition? We're all prone to these clever myths. They are constantly pumped into our heads through popular music and movies and advertising and the promises of politicians. Our families and friends repeat them to us. If we are young... Our stories predict a tale of flying through college into the major that will bring us into that totally satisfying job that we will do for the rest of our lives, which will make us prosperous, lead into an easy marriage with lots of happy kids to go with the house and the chocolate lab. We live in those kind of stories. Or, I can't just pick on young folks here. If we are old... The story promises a retirement with nary a financial worry and the physical vitality of that impossibly looking, young-looking old woman in the AARP ad. (laughs) And we live in those stories. And we try to get that story to somehow fit into the story that Jesus has written that we're a part of. So how do we avoid the influence of these myths? Well, we've got to pay attention. That's what Peter said. Pay attention as to a lamp shining in a bright, dark place. Now, he's just told us about seeing the glorious, radiant, shining face of Jesus Christ. So we've got to see Jesus as He is. The divine Son of God. And we've got to see Jesus as He is. The suffering servant. And the yet-to-return King. And we've got to listen to Him. We've got to hear what He says and adjust as His words require our change. If you feed more on the stories this world parades before your eyes than the story given to us in Scripture you will be very vulnerable to being led away from the gospel 
and Jesus Christ. But the promise, the promise of Matthew 17, because this wasn't just recorded for those three disciples, it wasn't just recorded for the twelve, it was recorded for us because we stand as those disciples today and in the Scripture by the Spirit, we can enter into the story and see Jesus and hear Him speak. Our part is to see what He's revealed and to adjust to what He's said as we await the glorious return of our King. For one day, we will see Him face to face. as Peter, James, and John saw him transfigured before them on that mountain. Let's pray. Lord, we've looked into your word now and we've gotten some understanding of what happened in that day and Now we ask that that story would adjust the stories that we tell ourselves about our lives. And we would become, we would become like Peter after the resurrection, where we realized Jesus is worth everything. Suffering for Him is the greatest honor that we could ever take on. Whatever that looks like, whatever it means for us to take up our cross daily. Lord, I pray that all of us would be aware of the lying stories that are told around us. And all of us would be more aware of the story you've given us in this book. The myths of this age will all evaporate with the turn of history. But the truth of God's word and the surety of his promises will never fail from age to age. He is always the same. And so, Lord, we trust in You. Change our hearts and our minds, we ask through Jesus. Amen.